truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I physically like sailing. I like having a tiller, a steering stick in my hand. I like having feel the wind of the sheets. And on the big sailboats like the Rainbow Warrior, which is 190 feet, you don't feel those things, but I know what's going on. And I physically like the sensation. I like the sound. I like hearing the engine going off. The ocean is a beautiful place. I remember first showing my daughters the ocean sky and it's so much brighter than what you see here on land and the stars and you see the belt of the Milky Way coming across and the sunrises and sunsets. I absolutely love being at sea on a full moon night where you can read a book right on deck from the light of the moon. Most people in the world simply want peace. I think when you get to be a leader, your mind gets a little twisted. You see colors on the map and you want to change it your color. Having started off in the civil rights movement and saw the effectiveness of nonviolent protest, I'm a strong believer of it. Nonviolent direct action means you try to do something to stop something, I suppose, from going on or to illustrate a problem. Nobody gets touched. Nobody gets hurt. You don't do any property damage. You don't scratch the paint. We do paint vessels. We do put paint on them. We just write slogans like stop toxic burning or whatever you want. That seems to be okay. We're willing to hurt ourselves. We're willing to destroy our own boats. And it's true that if you manage to get your boat crushed between the, the dock and the ship or something like that, or two ships, you get brownie points and a free beer when you get back to Amsterdam. But we absolutely do not damage anybody else's stuff. That, I think, has saved us on a number of occasions because even if people don't like us, they know we're nonviolent. I've been arrested about a dozen times, maybe. Uh, I, I haven't counted them up in a while. Maybe it's 15 at this point. Some have been more dramatic than others. But you know, getting arrested is not a bad thing when it's for the right reason. Not a bad thing at all. I'm Peter Wilcox, speaking to you from Greenwich Village, New York City. I've been an environmentalist since I got out of high school. 
a political activist and a sailor for Greenpeace for 35 years. My family were politically active. I grew up in Village Creek, which was, I think, the first intentionally integrated community in New England. It was a co-op started by my grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, and a few others. They wanted it to be on the water so that because they were all sailing oriented. Their community was a wonderful collection of artists and intellectuals. It was a, a concept way ahead of its time. For years in Norwalk, it was called Kami Creek. Somebody even came up with the rather amazing thing that if you lined all the houses up, they pointed to New York City so the Russian bombers could, could find their way. I grew up being a sailor. My parents used to take the crib and tie it on the back deck and go sailing. The story, which I actually don't remember, is that one day I sat up in the crib for the first time and watched the water rushing by and got very excited, and it's held with me my whole life. I feel very fortunate that I was able to combine those two parts of my life, the political activism and the sailing. had black friends, Jewish friends, it just didn't matter. And then the concept of segregation was completely strange to me. I attended public schools that were at least 40% non-white. I'm just guessing. My dad woke me up one morning and said, hey, you want to go to a civil rights march? I guess I was 12 years old at the time. I remember going to a lunch counter on our way from the Atlanta airport to Montgomery and we were with an associate of my dad's and a, uh, an assistant of his, and we were hungry, it was dinner time, and so we went to this restaurant and prominently displayed on, by the front door was a sign that said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, which was essentially saying it was a whites-only restaurant. And we met the Selma Montgomery Civil Rights March in Montgomery and then go with the marchers, join with the marchers the next day. And I guess there were upwards of 20,000 people that joined the march on the last day. We are going to walk non-violently and peacefully to let the nation and the world know we are tired now. We've lived with slavery and segregation. You have to remember, at the time, in Lowndes County, Alabama, when the march marched through it, when the march went through that county, there were no African-Americans registered to vote. That's really the classic example of why the march was so necessary. I have one recollection of African-American army reservists lining the street along with white army reservists, but to keep the peace because they were afraid of violence. I mean, remember, people were killed on this march, and people were killed after it as a result of it. remember marching and walking through the black section of town and having kids come up and hand you a glass of water. Uh, I remember clapping and cheering. And then when we got to the business section, it all became quiet like a funeral march. Nobody's saying anything. 
So it was, there was tension. But again, there was this amazing sense of optimism and feeling that we could do this. <laughs> I've never gotten in any other thing I've been involved with, whether it was the Vietnam War protests or the environmental movement today. I suppose, what was it, 1967, I was in the seventh grade. Uh, I went to Russia for, I think it was seven or eight weeks, because my family wasn't, wasn't afraid of reds under the bed. Socialism wasn't a dirty word. So I went, I went to a Young Pioneer youth camp called Camp Arteca. But it was an international camp. We bunked with the Swedes. It was very nice accommodations. It wasn't tense. It was almost a hotel-type setting. One of the things I took away from it, probably the strongest memory, was that people would find out we were the American delegation. And I'm talking about simply adults on the street, adults at the camp, and they'd come up and very sincerely say, we just want peace. Russia lost 27 million people in the Great Patriotic War, and that was, was only 20 years previous to my going there. And 20 years ago, they were in a fight for their lives against Hitler's Germany. Probably one of the lessons I learned in not judging a country by what its government is doing. I mean, my God, I certainly wouldn't want to be held responsible for what this country has done. One night, I watched Walter Cronkite on the CBS Evening News describe a village in South Vietnam, and this is in the winter of 1967, that was doing better as a community when the Vietnam were running it than when the South Vietnamese were running it. And I was passionately interested in that. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. And for me, that was a jaw-dropping moment, because here was the established journalist on the evening news saying things were so bad over there, people were better off with the Viet Cong running things than the South Vietnamese. And I thought, well, the war is lost. That is just craziness. I knew I didn't want to get involved. There was no question of that. Uh, the question was, you wait and see what your draft lottery number is. Well, fortunately, mine didn't leave a whole lot of debate. I was number one. Oh, I wasn't going to do it. The options were going to Canada, going to jail. Or in my case, what I did was, uh, thanks to my father, I got a conscientious objector's deferment. What I said at the time was I can never conceive of supporting the United States in a war, which I felt quite safe, quite logical in doing so. I couldn't imagine that we would actually get involved with a war that I would, would think was a good thing. When I said that, my draft board said, okay, well, he's a lost cause. Because it's a replica of the old time sloop 
Well, Clearwater is a replica Hudson River sloop that was started by Pete Seeger and a bunch of other people on the up in Beacon, New York, Cold Spring, that does environmental education on the Hudson River. It's still sailing today, still a very successful program. That made Clearwater federally approved conscientious objector duty. So I just applied to go to the Clearwater. It was a great place to start off. I mean, I started sailing on the Clearwater when I was 19. I stayed six years there. Well, I started off being a mate, and then I was captain in 1976 to 1980. And I was entranced. I mean, it was a bunch of hippies living in an old wooden boat, and I was like, whoa. We did mostly educational programs just advocating for a clean Hudson River. And it still is today. I suppose after my first couple years, I could see enough of a future that I thought, boy, this is really what I want to do. I'm just going to stay and, and ride this horse until I get thrown off. College was not a big draw for me. I really didn't know what I was going to study. But at age 19, I had the perception that I'd do clear water for four or five years. We'd have great environmental success. And we did have some. And then I'd move on to serious adult work. <laughs> That's the last thing never quite happened. <laughs> My time to clear water was coming to an end. And I had read the book Warriors of the Rainbow by Bob Hunter. And the only workable plan we were able to come up with was to take a boat and go right out in the ocean and against whatever odds uh, we had to face. And that looked amazing to me. And then drive out right in front of the harpoon so that the harpooner wouldn't have a shot at the whale without... And I saw this advertisement in a fisherman's newspaper called The National Fisherman, which I used to read at the time. Engineers, mates, and deckhands wanted aboard the Greenpeace boat Rainbow Warrior, and I went, wow, actually doing something physical to affect an issue. That just resonated so strongly. Four days later, I was, I was up there. I went up to New Bedford. I had called up, you know, had an interview. And they said, well, come back if you want to. And I was, I never left. I never got on. The Rainbow Warrior came to the United States in 1981. It was a rusting hulk in the docks of, of London, and we bought it with a grant from the World Wildlife Fund from the Dutch, and I think we spent 70,000 pounds on it. While I was on board, we must have put another $120,000 into it because we put the sailing rig on it, and we put all new engines in it. We then built another one that sailed until about four years ago when she was replaced by the third. So there have been three boats by that name. We just do it to confuse people. My specialty is running the boats, not as a campaigner. It's the campaigner's job to know everything about an issue, whether it's toxic pollution in New Jersey or baby seals in Canada or whales in the West Coast or whales all over the whole world. That's their specialty.
Some captains in Greenpeace don't take part in the actions. I like it. I was hired as a possible deckhand. I think they liked my resume. They liked that I had been doing environmental work for six or seven years, and I seemed interesting. So I was told I could come on as a, as a possible deckhand. That was 1981. I got there the first day, and the captain came to me and said, do you know how to paint? At that point, I'd been a professional sailor for 10 years, and of course, I knew how to paint. And he said, okay, well, I want you to redo the name on the stern. I thought to myself, oh, man, I, I never said I could do lettering. So he went back and showed it to me, and it was the worst lettering job. It looked like a six-year-old had taken a, a spackling brush and in about four seconds tried to cut the name into the stern. And then I looked at it again, and I saw that somebody had punched the outline of what should be the lettering into the steel. I thought, oh, I can do that. At the end of the day, the captain was so impressed with my painting ability, he made me the first mate. <laughs> this is not how it usually works. Very first one was Perth Amboy, where national-led industry was, was dumping about a million gallons of sulfuric acid solution into the ocean every day, right within sight of the Jersey beaches. We shadowed the tug and barge in and out of the Raritan River to the factory. And, and one day they anchored in the fog because they didn't want to move. So we took an inflatable over there and a bunch of the crew chained themselves to the anchor chain so they couldn't pick it up or let it down or do anything. Before the Coast Guard came to break everybody free, we made the 5 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, the 7 o'clock news. Within six months, the factory was closed. Actions that had dramatic effect on making the issue part of the public discourse, making people aware that something was happening. Late fall of 1981, that I was giving the amazing salary of $300 a month to captain the boat. And I thought, whoa, this is great now. I'm making money and I'm doing exactly, I was so happy to be there. You know, you start off by being really clearly nonviolent. You don't push anybody. You don't yell at anybody. You don't run if you can help it. And that calms things down. And we always try to have women involved with the boarding teams, and that calms things down a little more. It's logical to try to understand what laws you're breaking. Normally, there's quite a careful review of local laws and things like that. One of the next campaigns we did was against whaling in Peru. Peru announced that it was not going along with the IWC moratorium to and commercial whaling. And so when we went up and climbed on board the whaling ship in the northern fishing town, they came out and arrested us. And a few hours later, when we were in the barracks, the lawyer for the government, the prosecutor, I'm not sure who he was, said, you know, we've looked at the laws and we're going to have to do you for piracy. 
in Europe, the definition, and in the America, the definition of piracy is to steal the cargo, to take control of the boat, to do anybody injury. And we clearly don't do any of those things. In Peru, the law is different. They weren't pulling a fast one. It's simply the way they had written the law. In Peru, if you go on board the boat, they're going to nail you. That's um, 15 to 20 years in a Peruvian jail. In Peru, there's no bail. They don't feed you in jail. You have to have people on the outside that, that feed you. People knew that we weren't out for our own gain. And the prosecutor, when he finally dropped the charges, said that we were rather misled but well-intentioned young people who were not out for their own gain. One of the truths I've learned in this business was that when a factory is polluting, it's generally more dangerous for the people working in it than for the people working, living five miles away. In 1987, we were doing a series of actions against a boat called the Volcanos, which was owned by Waste Management Services here in the United States. And they were burning toxic waste in the middle of the North Sea from a tanker that had huge incinerators on board. It was affecting the fish in the North Sea, it was affecting the fishermen. The crew had been told if we came along and demonstrated that we were going to cost them their jobs. Well, unfortunately, that was true. We did shut them down. They did lose their jobs. They're seamen. I certainly hope they were able to get good jobs elsewhere. Nineteen eighty-eight, July fourth in Aalborg, Denmark, and the U.S. had a destroyer named the Cunningham that was licensed to carry nuclear weapons. Denmark at the time, and I hopefully still does, has a strong anti-nuclear policy where they do not let nuclear weapons into their country. Denmark said, you know we don't want weapons in here, we're going to trust you to do the right thing. So they were steaming up the channel at 18 knots. Six of us got into the inflatables and started jumping off right in his path, which was about as effective as trying to kill a moose with a fly swatter. And they went right through us. It's on the high seas, and the boat puts you on the outside of a turn. It may develop enough current to push you under into the propellers. But when it's going up a narrow channel, it can't do that. Really quite easy just to make sure that all your body parts are on one side of the bow or the other. As long as the boat goes straight, you don't get sucked into the propellers. And you can actually have conversations, short ones, with the sailors on deck who are looking down thinking you're just completely out of your mind. And we did that, I don't know, five or six times as it's going up the channel. And they didn't slow down a knot. As they're getting into the harbor, I jumped onto the bow and hooked on with a little hook. 
When the tugboats saw me in the water, they refused to come alongside. So the ship had to anchor in the middle of the harbor. And that's when the atmosphere changed dramatically because all the U.S. sailors, it was 4th of July, they were all in their dress, shore-going blues, looking really proper. And all of a sudden, they had to get back into their sea-going detail because they had to anchor. They had to be on deck. And they could see those beers just sliding over the horizon. And for a sailor that's been on a dry ship for a month, you're messing around. But we did it. We held them out in the harbor for six or seven hours before the police came and arrested us. And the local townspeople had heard of our action, and about 50 of them threw themselves into the water in front of the ship. We actually inspired people to help us. This morning, Greenpeace activists launched a covert operation. Greenpeace has a salacious ad on the internet. Greenpeace. Halfway around the world, Greenpeace marks 25 If the years press doesn't cover an action, it's like it didn't happen. And sometimes actions don't get covered. One story, probably the most dramatic activity I did in Greenpeace was the relocation of 350 islanders from Rongelap in the Marshall Islands that had been used as guinea pigs in a nuclear radiation testing. A brilliance of 500 suns lights hundreds of miles of the Pacific and the force of a million tons of TNT is released. We used the Marshall Islands intentionally as guinea pigs by the U.S. military to test the effects of radioactive fallout. Fifteen seconds later, the light is still unbearable. Observers may well squint, for they may have witnessed a prelude to world destruction. The islanders were 120, 150 miles away. When this bomb went off, they could feel the heat at 10 o'clock in the morning and hear the sound from one 20 megaton blast. Marshallese caught by fallout got 175 ranchions of radiation. Most humans are exposed to less than 20 ranchions in a lifetime. People were all getting sick from radiation sickness, vomiting, diarrhea, hair loss, skin burns. And the Navy realized they were going to have to move them off the island right away or they wouldn't live. So they moved them away. But then three years later, after monitoring their health for the three, three and a half years, and watching their background radiation levels go down, they moved them back to Rongelap, knowing it was still hot, and monitored their radiation levels as they went up again. And the people began to experience more and more health issues. Women had multiple miscarriages. Seven or eight miscarriages wasn't unusual. Women had jellyfish babies, which is exactly what it sounded like. Unformed, no bones that would live for a few hours and then die. There was stunted growth, there was mental retardation, there was premature aging. And instead of protect the people, instead of building up their economy, instead of building up their education, instead of bringing them into the 20th century, it used them as guinea pigs to test nuclear weapons. And the ugliness still continues today.
When we went there in 1985, they had already been on record for a number of years as asking to be relocated. They appealed to their own government and then to the U.S. government to move them off the atoll. When we came, we contacted their senator, Jenton Angine, the first dentist in the Marshall Islands, and he said, yeah, you can get us the heck off the island. And it wasn't really till we got there we realized what we were undertaking. It wasn't just moving people. It was moving as much of their village as we could. We, could, didn't, we, we didn't move the church, but we moved tons of roofing material, two-by-four, and plywood to build houses on the new island. I guess we had upwards of 100 people on for some of the trips. We did four trips. Nineteen eighty-five was our year of protesting nuclear testing in the Pacific. The first place we went to was the Marshall Islands. The second place we intended to go was French Polynesia, where the French were doing underground testing. And there are a number of radiation leaking fissures in the atoll now that are the radiation is just pouring into the Pacific Ocean. The idea was to stop off in New Zealand, reprovision the ship, and then take off from Moroa. About half the crew had gone ashore. They all scattered in different directions. That evening, we had a meeting with the other Peace Fleet boats. We were going to be leading a, a fleet of boats out to Mururoa. Quarter of 12, I was laying in my bed. The boat shook. First thought was we'd been involved with a collision with another ship at sea. I looked out my forward porthole and saw the lights of the dock and realized nothing much can be wrong. Oh, we're safely tied to the dock. I lay back in bed and realized I didn't hear the generators going. By the time I got to the engine room door, which was only 15 feet down the hallway, the chief engineer was standing there muttering, well, it's over, she's finished, she's done with. I looked where he was looking and I could see water less than three feet below the deck I was standing on, which meant the whole engine room was already flooded. There was only four or five people gathered in the hallway. I said, let's all get on the dock and we'll figure it out there. That's when the second bomb went off and you could feel the whole boat jump. Abandoned ship, everybody off now. I went up forward. I was worried about people up in the theater area, which is where we'd just been having the meeting. It wouldn't have been at all surprising for half a dozen people to still be down there. And I stepped into water, so I knew I wasn't going to do any good there. Went back to my cabin. I was naked at the time, and I was going to try to find some clothes. The boat started to heel over against the dock as it slid down the bank, as it sank, and I just had time to go once more down the back the accommodation deck and calling out to abandoned ship, poking my head into cabins, and get out on the dock and look at the boat sinking in the water. Chief Engineer Davy Edward came up to me and said, well, Fernando's down there, photographer Fernando Pereira. And I said, oh, come on, he always goes ashore at night. And Davy said, no, he's down there. Seems what happened was the second bomb wrenched his door so he couldn't open it. At that point, the water was thick with, with diesel fuel bubbling out of the tanks. 
I don't think I could have dove down and, and done any good. And I didn't try, which is something I've always re regretted. One of the women off the other boats had come up to me with some clothes and said, when the second bomb went off, I saw a bright blue flash underwater. Plus, I knew that we had nothing that could explode like that in the engine room. Diesel fuel doesn't explode like that. Gasoline might, but we didn't have any gasoline down there. There was nothing in the engine room. So I was convinced that bombs had been planted on the boat. Ten minutes later, the fire department showed up, ordered us off the boat, asked us if there were any more bombs on board, and I said no. The cops were skeptical. We were taken over to the police station, where we were grilled pretty hard by a couple policemen. At about 10 o'clock, the divers were able to get down through the mud and find the first hole. And it was a six by seven foot hole on the side of the hole you could drive a Volkswagen through. Blew it apart like your fist going through a paper bag. And the divers confirmed that the bomb had definitely been on the outside. All the torn metal was going inwards. And that's when the cops said, okay, well, I think now we believe it wasn't you guys. And they lightened up a lot. The Rainbow Warrior sank just four minutes after the second bomb was detonated, so there is no doubt this was a well-planned attack. What had happened the night of the bombing was that the two divers had tied the, an inflatable boat across the dockside using rebreathing equipment, swum underwater to the Rainbow Warrior, planted the bombs, gone back to their inflatable, driven away. And when they were going in the, the yacht harbor, they had taken the motor off the inflatable and dumped it in the water, dragged the inflatable up the beach, and left it there. The members of the yacht club saw this, and they said, oh, my God, these the damn kids are back again. So they copied down the name of the camper van as it left. A former French Secret Service agent has admitted planting the bombs which blew up a Greenpeace ship more than 30 years ago in New Zealand, killing a Portuguese photographer. The two French agents were apprehended trying to return a camper van, and they were posing as Swiss tourists. French agents were questioned all day long, separately, this man and a woman. And later that night, they found out their Swiss passports were fake. So they found pretty quickly that there had been French involvement. It had been approved by President Mitterrand. An act of terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism in a foreign country. Two of the bombers captured by New Zealand were jailed for 10 years, but served only two after France threatened trade embargoes. In some weird way, it was a huge pat on the back that if we had scared a, a nuclear superpower so much that they were going to set out to kill us, that we must be doing something right. The bombing in 1985 in New Zealand really put Greenpeace in a lot of places it hadn't been before. Fundraising ran up dramatically. The whole 
the whole tone within the organization changed overnight. Made it possible so we can do many more things. I took a year off. I wanted to do some courses. I became an EMT. I took a radio course, went sailing with some friends. It was at the end of 1987 that I moved to Hamburg, Germany to rebuild the second Rainbow Warrior. Went from being an eight-month job to a year-and-a-half job. The second Rainbow Warrior was another North Sea trawler that we converted to sail. We had the amazing amount of money of $3.5 million to put into it. She was dramatically faster, better, bigger than the first Rainbow Warrior. Now the current Rainbow Warrior, that boat cost $22 million. She's a very modern ship in every way. We just did a trip from Durban, South Africa to Sydney, Australia, and we sailed 80% of the distance without the engine on at all. And that's us getting a chance to put our money where our mouth is and leaving a smaller carbon footprint by sailing. And I'm just thrilled to be able to do that. Climate change has generally been what we have come to work on. When I started in Greenpeace, we were doing whale actions. My admiration and respect to organizations who are still working on that, but my feeling is that if we don't get a handle on climate change, there aren't gonna be any more whales anyway. You know, as we pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, the ocean absorbs almost an equal amount of it and changes it to acid, so the oceans are coming to acidic. The Arctic is one of the biggest oil producers in the world, and their Siberian fields are running low. Putin believes that the future to Russia's success is to drill for oil in the Arctic Sea, which is becoming increasingly more opened. As climate change gets worse, the ice becomes less, but Putin's not getting the message. So that's why we went there. We went there to say, look, Russia's drilling for oil. It's stupid. They shouldn't be. All we do is climb up on this rig a little bit, hold some banners, take some pictures, and go. We're going up for a photo op. When we went up in the summer of 2013, almost as soon as we got alongside of the rig, they started firing machine guns at us within three feet of our boats. They were spraying them with freezing water from the hoses above, and they were pulling on their climbing ropes out away and smashing them against the steel structure. Fortunate that nobody got shot. Since that action, when people start firing, we start running, and there's no, there's no carrying on. We had two people arrested, and we spent the next 30 hours just doing donuts around the rig outside the safety zone, hoping to negotiate getting our arrested activists back. The notion that we're going to take over this oil rig, which is full of hundreds of men and armed soldiers, is so ludicrous as just not to be remotely possible. About 30 hours after the action, it was the evening of the second day, 
They flew out with Spetsnaz troops on a helicopter and abseiled down onto the heli deck of the boat. They were all armed, of course, and they, they took over the boat and arrested us all. Routine was they tow you into Murmansk because we refused to run the ship. They arrest you, they spend a couple days processing you, and you stay on the ship, and then they say, get the hell out. And that's what we expected to happen. They said, okay, you're all gonna come in for a couple hours just to answer some questions. And we got in there, and that's when they said, okay, you're all in jail for two months. That was a shot, charging us with piracy. There's a, an expression in Russian prisons, don't hope, don't fear, don't beg. They were hard. I mean, the attitude of all the Russians we saw was that, okay, you're gonna be here a long time. It was a month before I could meet with a lawyer. I lost 20 pounds in three weeks. Not from not eating, just from stress. And I didn't particularly feel stressed, but it's in the back of your mind. You know, am I going to really spend 10 to 15 years here? For the young women that were part of the crew, they're thinking, well, maybe I'm never going to have a family. You know, I'll get out before I die, but I may not have my health. December of 2013 was also leading up to Sochi Olympics. We assumed that Putin didn't want us in jail during Sochi because there would probably be demonstrations. The last week in jail there, if I could look out and see some trees, I could see the Neva River out one side of the window, just a corner of it. And I'm thinking, I am really ready to get out of here. We were actually going to trial. We all had to go to trial again separately for an additional three months in jail. When you're in the detention hearings in Russia, you're kept in a cage, an iron cage. And if there's anything that makes you feel like a dirty, rotten scumbag, it's everybody's dressed nicely in the court, and you're sitting there in the, pretty much the same clothes you walked in with a month before. And I get into court, and finally they take me back over for the sentencing. And I had a pretty bad translator at that point. She's talking into my ear, and the judge spends like three minutes going on and on about why I can't get bail. And I'm going lower and lower and lower. And then she switches, and she spends about 45 seconds talking about why I should get bail. Halfway through that process, I realized she's simply summarizing the investigator, prosecutor, and the defense lawyer's cases. And then she says, and bail is granted. Two days later, I was released. Greenpeace had to put up 60,000 euros each. In the 40-odd years I've been working for the environmental movement, we've simply watched the world go right down the tubes. So there just hasn't been success. I want to leave my two daughters and my stepson a planet that they can live on and feel comfortable enough to have children of their own. And right now, I'm, I'm not sure if they're there. 
I'd like to see the U.S. make a serious effort at all its infrastructure. We are so backward and behind the times. And it's simply because we don't have the initiative to go out and put in a decent high-speed rail service between Boston and Washington, D.C. And it's because we don't have the initiative to go out and build wind farms the way we need them and really get down the cost of solar panels. And we're just stuck in the past, and it's so frustrating. We could be spending money on changing our energy system to something that's not going to pollute the world and kill people. We're not doing it. We're not doing it nearly fast enough. Well, I'm going to be speaking on Islesboro, Maine next week to the graduating class of the high school. And I'm going to tell them, if you want to lead a more rewarding life, get involved. It will make you happier to get involved, to try to do something outside your immediate sphere of concerns and influence. The English and American surveys I've read on this issue say that being a political activist to the extreme of getting arrested and possibly hurt does not make you a happier person. Being a political activist and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, if you will, does make you a happier person. My prescription for leading a more fun life, for doing something with your life, is not to be overly concerned with your bank account. It's not to be overly concerned with the size of your house or your job title. Do something where you can feel like you're a functioning member of society, where you can feel you're contributing. And I think it will make your life better. And I think everybody can do something, whether it's walking down the street and picking up some trash, getting involved with any any extent, whether it's going down to your political party and put licking stamps, everybody can find something they can do. I advocate it. I have found it a pretty good life so far. So that, that kind of leads to the next question, like, how do you want to be remembered? Like, can you say the question, too, so we can get the... How will I be remembered? I don't have a clue. You know, <laughs> a funny guy that had some fun. A sailor that, uh, that had a political conscience. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. Music in this episode was provided by Villages. You can find links to their music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Over at the site, you can also find all of our past episodes ways to subscribe to our social media channels and newsletter, as well as photos taken by Clark Tolton that will complement this episode. You can find Everything is Stories 
on all of the social media platforms and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow us, subscribe, engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>